Hi, I'm Anna Burt, and I'm Sue's daughter. Hi, I'm Emily Benito. I'm Trudy's daughter. Though our mums are both dead, the fact doesn't change. We're both adapting to living our lives without our mums, and know we are very much not the only ones. We have joined forces to create a podcast in the hope that we can provide what we feel we needed and still need in our grief. The mothership, the mother load. There's no getting around that mother means something big. There are so many different kinds of mother, biological, step, figure, and so many different kinds of grief when they're gone. We're here to do what we can in podcast form, welcoming guests so we can explore our experiences together, where they converge and where they vary, and, hopefully, understand a little more about the nuance and scope of The The Mother mother of All Losses. Hello, Anna Burt. How is your grief today? <laughs> I'm just so excited to talk to you. Um, <laughs> lockdown is this lockdown is hell compared to the first one. Um, oh. In terms of my like levels of like social interaction, like like I, I keep talking over people. I like stutter now. I get really weird. So um, so apologies in advance. I think it's really starting to um to grate. Um, my grief is, you know, I'm not very well this week. Actually, oh. I have got um, I'm basically not quite sure what's wrong with me but um I am so exhausted all the time like I sleep and but I sleep quite broken in the night I, I napped for four hours this is my day off I, I napped for four hours this afternoon that's not a nap that's a sleep and then I woke up and I still didn't feel rested so I'm gonna go and have some blood tests I think I might be anemic again and I often um get anemic reactions when I'm like not feeling great so I think it's my body being like listen mate (laughs) you're actually not as well as you think you are so um my body's letting me down um which normally means my brain starts letting me down um but it hasn't been too bad and my grief is kind of um it's just existing quietly um I um it doesn't feel too acute at the moment I think mostly I'm so tired that I can't I can't really do much apart from just kind of survive at the moment. Does that sound a bit dramatic? No, I don't think it's dramatic at all. I am quite dramatic. (laughs) Number one, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to be dramatic. But number two, I know what meaning of dramatic you're saying there. And I don't think it is wrong to feel that way at all, given, you know, the pandemic. And the thing that bothers me is when people talk about lockdown 3.0 and I'm like, no, it's all cumulative. Because saying that suggests it's a new, fresh lockdown, and it's not. It We're all still dealing with this and through winter. And you yourself have gone through so much in terms of moving. And even though that's a really brilliant thing, it's still energy expended. And I think that's it. There's this idea that somehow good moves, whether it be moving house or whatever, is somehow so positive that therefore it'll just replenish us. And that's not how no, it, it works. <laughs> Moving twice in the pandemic is not something I'd recommend to anyone. Oh, jeez. Oh, and yeah, and like, no wonder that's the fatigue you're feeling. Yeah, I think I pride myself on my energy and at the moment I'm lacking it, um, which just basically um, just makes me feel low. So I'm more general low. My grief isn't particularly part of it, apart from, um, no, no. It's just not really. And um, my brother at the moment, I hope you won't mind me saying, we'll get him on in a few weeks, is um, 
recently started going to therapy, which has been really interesting for him because he didn't really know my mum as an adult. He was only 18 when she died. Um, and I was a mature 21 year old and he was a very young 18 year old and bless him. He's been asking me questions recently, like, um, that, that I guess have been coming up during therapy when he's exploring his grief and the thought that he didn't get the privilege of knowing her as an adult makes me really sad and that's something that is really getting to me at the moment and just not really being able to answer his questions you know or just thinking I can't remember or I'm not sure I can say that with any authority and it feels like such a big thing to comment on um so I think you know I think it's great that he's doing it but it makes me feel extra sad. And I always say to him, if I could ever have 10 minutes with her, which obvs never going to happen, um, I would give them to him because she'd just be so proud and she never saw any of the cool stuff that he's doing. She actually died quite anxious that he, you know, was, wasn't going to work out what he wanted to do or whatever. And, and he has, and he's wonderful. So that is very sad. So I just kind of found myself like weeping with pride and sadness, um, which, um, it's funny, it's it's the thing that upsets me most these days, but I'm working on it. Um, and Emily, my love, how are you this week and how is your grief? I will answer that question, but I just really wanted to um, share a thought with you that I had just then as you were talking about that kind of fear of like, well, this, the, the sadness again in like forgetting certain things or like not being able to meet Seb's questions in a way that you feel that maybe there's an expectation to. And I think the thing is, is that I think we often feel, I certainly do, like, because it's such an immense thing to want to remember someone completely. And even though my mum was really open with me in terms of how she lived her entire life, I only knew her as my mum, really. And so I only have my perspective of her. And that's kind of always going to be okay and still like living and changing as I get older and understand more about what it's like to be sort of the ages that she was. These are the things that I'm trying to think of at the moment in terms of getting older and feeling that. So you're, you're still giving Seb your perspective and your love and attention, but that's not to say that there isn't that sadness that he didn't know her as an adult and she didn't get to see him and how he is now but he still has you completely on his side weeping with pride for him and you'd happily give him those 10 minutes so I think there's still something very real in that amidst the sorrow that is also you know there's plenty of sorrow <laughs> yeah but you know what like it's it's also happy tears and just relief as well that he's come out <laughs> that he's come out so well. Um, I mean, yes, I'd like to credit myself with a lot of that, but <laughs> I think you can. I think you should. <laughs> I think I can. I think you can. Oh God, the amount of essays I've read of his. He's much cleverer than me, really. He just he won't <laughs> ever submit anything until I've read the whole thing, and I'm like, oh my God, people pay me for this. You should really be paying for this. <laughs> you can just invoice him in years to come. As for uh, as for my grief, I I went to my first and hopefully last um, web broadcast funeral this week because it was my friend Jules's funeral, and it was honestly like kind of a split decision because I'd 
or I'd gone I'd gone round in all these sort of intellectualizing circles as I do being like I don't think I want to have a funeral kind of at home and in my space and there's other ways to commemorate jewels and there's this rush to sort of um I understand and I don't think funerals are a bad thing but I'm also like look a funeral isn't the only way that you commemorate and celebrate someone and then I got sent the link to it the night before and I was like I and it was just like oh I'm going in as much as I can you know air quotes go and it was there was still such a core of why we do this rite of passage (laughs) to it um Jules was an avid like k-pop fan and her (laughs) her coffin came into the crematorium to a bts song and I just like immediately like burst out laughing and crying because I was like of course like Jules has arrived (laughs) of course her jam would be playing and it was just really beautiful to hear the celebrant share all of like and it was it was mainly just people sort of sending in stories about her we also got him to say things like kick the arse off you and drawing knobs and willies so I think everyone was like yeah we did really well by her in that regard and then it it ended with take on me and uh, like that is a song that I'd never quite realized you know depending on the context not to get too like Adam Curtis on everyone but fuck me that's actually an amazing funeral song (laughs) um but yeah I lit a candle I wore a black dress I cried a lot and uh, as much as I missed actually being there in the room and being in the room with other people because I mean it's just such a corporeal thing isn't it and it's just weird to sort of see it happen I think it's because it feels like telly yeah <laughs> you know totally but I'm I'm glad that you went and I think that um it sounds like everyone did did justice to the situation which is very sad thank you and and we still will like we still got plans we've got other plans for when we can actually be together and I hope anyone who's listening who has been through like oh god I it's just so awful like loss and trying to you know trying to mark things in this time is so difficult when you can't gather but even if it doesn't happen right now yeah do it and don't forget to do it as well you know because it's part of it's such an important part of grief is like memorial um so I would suggest that you know give yourself time with your loved ones to you know have you know have those conversations through floods of tears and fits of laughter that you know you haven't been afforded I think it's very important couldn't agree more Anna so So. our guest today (laughs) so 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 jinx so jinx had luck (laughs) oh do you remember that (laughs) oh I do I had such a vivid like my my mouth like Pavlovian just like went shut and I was like who who can I run to who knows my entire like full name (laughs) who can can free me from this shackle um (laughs) our guest today is a wonderful writer listener of the podcast this is the exciting thing about um getting into the second season some of you listeners have uh, got in touch and wanted to be even more a part of it which is beautiful um we love it Oh, love it so much. Kath Renton is a brilliant writer 
And she and I followed each other on social media for a little while. And I've really admired what she shared. And I think, well, I think it's fair to say, Kath, you went viral recently because of a fantastic article that was published in Vogue about toxic positivity, which, uh, I mean, I'm just going to hand to you, Kath, because you, you, you talk about it so brilliantly. And I'm just nodding and agreeing with everything <laughs> you're saying about it. Yeah, something that came up a lot in grief um, and it started when my mum was sick, when she was first diagnosed with terminal cancer, was people sending me good vibes. Oh, so many good vibes. Oh, I didn't know good vibes could cure cancer. I know, it's amazing. <laughs> um, apparently, yes, good vibes, positive thoughts, all the, all of that. I got so much, um, I didn't know what it was called at the time, um, toxic positivity, just people trying to dismiss and minimize my feelings and it was it was really horrendous and really isolating because I couldn't talk to anyone about how I was really feeling which was shit um without being told that everything happens for a reason or here's some positive thoughts yeah I just oh and I think since the pandemic it seems to have gotten immeasurably worse um you know lost your job at least you've still got a home you know Oh, you're oh, you're sick. You're not feeling well. At least it's not COVID. Mm. Uh, just so true. Even the the one-upmanship of people, you know, who's having a worse pandemic. It's like we're all in the same boat. It's rubbish. Just you know, it's not a competition. Shut up. Yeah, it's all shit in different ways, guys. Yeah, and yeah, there's so much of it on social media that really, really grates me. Um, yeah, the good vibes only chat. And like, what if all my vibes are bad? Does that mean that I don't deserve love? <laughs> what god yeah it's the smugness of it i think that really gets me and i'm like who is writing this shit what kind of lockdown are you having <laughs> yeah you're not in the uk clearly yes probably some kind of digital native in antigua or something yeah that's the thing probably written from a beach in mauritius or something yeah so Kath, how is your grief today oh i always liken my grief to like being in water some days I'm just like bobbing along and it's okay and it might be sunny and ah, oh, this is quite nice. And then some days I feel like I'm absolutely thrashing about and like water's going in my mouth and it's it's horrendous. From December to March, it's pretty much trying to just keep my head above water. Um, Christmas is always really hard. Mum was really into Christmas. Um, and then in the beginning of January, it's my birthday. Then it's my mum's birthday in February in two days time. And then we've got Mother's Day in March. And it just feels like one thing after another, after another. Her, for some reason, my birthday seems to bother me more than her birthday. I think just because she always makes fuss. And because it's the beginning of January and nobody gives a crap if your birthday's at the beginning of January. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, yeah, but you just had Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think just I miss her making a fuss of me. So, yeah, December to March is pretty much just doing what you can to get through the day yeah survival mode really yeah that is that's pretty much it yeah my my grief is I suppose the word is complicated um it's I had PTSD two years after my mum died um her death happened at home and we knew it was happening and everything but it was just really traumatic for me to see and um I just for two years I was just a horrific cycle of flashbacks and 
nightmares. I woke up at the same time every night, which was the time she died, and it was just really horrible. Um, I think I actually started grieving the day that she got diagnosed with cancer. I think I think that was it, and people were really upset with me about that, the fact that I had already started the grieving process while she was still alive, but I think I was just trying to prepare myself like that would make it any better, which it didn't. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, th there's so many complicated layers of my grief. Um, my mum was diagnosed with cancer in the hospital department that I worked in. I used to work in um, administration in an endoscopy unit in a local hospital. And yeah, so she got diagnosed with cancer in the department that I worked in, which was just a bundle of fun. <laughs> I went from being the girl who works in the office to, oh, that's a girl whose mum's got cancer. And it was very strange, like for a little while, it was like a topic of gossip and it was like a local like celebrity, like, you know, people would like sort of whisper like, oh, did you hear what happened? And it was just very strange because um, I'd always really kept like, work was just work that was just you know you just did it it was sometimes boring sometimes stressful but you just did what you could to get through the day and then sort of that came into like life came into work and then after that I could never escape it because people would always ask about my mum which was fine and I understood why they did it because they cared but at the same time I couldn't switch off from it I saw my mum every day um, at the time I was living with my parents so I went home and it was it was there and I went to work and it was there and I just couldn't escape it so that was yeah I think that was the start of uh, the yeah the difficulties I ended up having with my grief that it wasn't just that my mum was dying it was also I'd lost my sense of who I was at work and yeah just going in every day and having to deal with patients who were very healthy and had perfectly healthy normal tests while my mum had just been given a death sentence was pretty grim yeah like just the sheer sort of contrast and being thrust in it and sort of no escape from it and I have to say like as someone who is also an early Jan birthday I feel you on that front and my birthday is so much worse than any of, sort of my mum's immediate um you know her birthday or her death day and um not just because she made a fuss over me but also because the very first time uh I had a birthday the first birthday I had after she died I was like oh it's a birthday and the person who gave birth to me is is dead and I was an absolute mess so I really really feel you on that Kath and also I was the same when my mum was diagnosed as terminal because I wanted someone to sit in reality with me. And I think that's the frustrating thing is that people thought that I was being uh, the sort of depressive cynic that I am prone to be. And I was like, no, I think it's different when several doctors say we've done all we can. It's a very different thing. Yeah, the, there's that thing where so much of what was going on, I knew I knew far too much about what was going on because it's, it was where I worked. And I could have honest conversations with the doctors that I work with, which was good. That did allow me a little bit of, you know, sort of bring it back down to reality rather than people telling me that, you know, maybe there'll be a miracle or something will happen and have long. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Oh. Um, maybe if she, maybe God, if she eats awful. enough kale, she'll get better. 
Oh, yeah, let's get some crystals. No, no, no. Um, but it was good because I was able to have conversations with him, sort of honest conversations. But then I also knew yeah. too much. Um, she had esophageal cancer. She had, she didn't even just have esophageal cancer. She had an incredibly rare form of it, which only one in a thousand people who get esophageal cancer get. Um, and the doctors couldn't believe that she was healthy and standing up and like she was absolutely riddled. It was um, it metastasized to so many lymph lymph nodes as far down as our kidneys, I think they said. So like all over the place, and uh, they couldn't believe that this woman was like normal, healthy, standing up. Apparently, all she had was indigestion. And I kept pushing her to go to the doctor because, like, where I worked, I thought you've got to go because you know I've got this really horrible, niggling feeling that something's not right, and I really want you to get checked out. And she was really reluctant to even go to the doctor about because she didn't like bothering people. Um, but yeah, that was it was the thing that you know, it, I just, the fact that I couldn't escape it, but also that people were trying to say, um, "Well, you know, d don't be like that because that will make things worse." But actually, I was just trying to be realistic rather than, you know, I obviously didn't want anything to happen. But when a doctor sits down and tells you that without treatment you might only have eight months to live. There, there's no, you know, happy side to that. There's no upside. Oh, Kath, it resonates so hard. I remember sitting with my mum. I went with her when she insisted, she, she'd received her terminal diagnosis, but she insisted on going up to UCL on the train, taking her up. She was in a wheelchair by then um, to go and speak to her oncologist because she needed to hear it again from him looking at him and I was sitting next to her and I could feel her trying to ask him how long she had left and he literally couldn't answer because her cancer was so rare there were only three recorded cases of the type of untreatable giant cell bone tumor that she had and that there was just so many unknowns about it and just that feeling it really there's such an isolation in death and grief anyway but then all the things like you know cancer research ads and Marie Curie ads and all of the kind of like raise money for cancer and help cancer that that clearly you know are quite triggering but I just remember thinking they're not curing her cancer you know and feeling quite detached from that because there wasn't any kind of shared experience in that particular type yeah because uh, that's what I found as well because because she had such a, a weird, rare type of esophageal cancer. Even if she didn't have that, she was still. It's there's, the outcomes for esophageal cancer are still really, really poor. Because usually by the time they found it, it's already spread somewhere else, and the position of it, it's really close to the heart, and there's all sorts of complications. But even if it had been that, that, that the outcome probably would have been poor. But the fact that she couldn't have any kind of operation, it had already spread so far. Um, and they told us, you know, it was going to be palliative care, but it was such a rapidly growing cancer that they couldn't even say if she would make it to eight months. In the end, she, it was 14 months she had some palliative chemo. Um, and we had an argument about that, actually, further down the line. She said that if she didn't have children or grandchildren, my brother's got two kids, if she didn't have children or grandchildren, she wouldn't have had any treatment. And I got really angry because I'm a person who's never going to have kids. And I said, well, does that mean that my life is less precious than yours? Because I'm not going to be a mum. Why Why is your life only worth fighting for because you've got kids? And I got really angry about it. And I understood where she was coming from. I, I did. But at the time, I just thought, oh, hang on a minute. 
you know, don't do this for us, do this for you, please, you know, take the treatment for you so that you can, you know, have more time with us. Don't do it just because of us. I mean, especially when I mean, the treatment was horrendous. It was so grueling on her. Um, she ended up in hospital a couple of times. She she got shingles and she had an abscess on top of her tumour, which I don't even know how that's even possible. But, um, yeah, like for the last six months of her life, she had to take a shot of morphine every time she had something to eat because she couldn't swallow without it. And um, I just thought, why are you doing this to yourself, you know, just for us? And I just got really angry about it. I say, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And I now think, yeah, that was probably a stupid argument. But um, she said that because she, she used to see a lot of people when she went in for treatment who were by themselves and do, didn't have anyone. And she said that she really felt for them. And, you know, she was, you know, oh, I hate the fight analogy, but she was, you know, fighting for her family. And yeah, I, I do get that. But at the time, I was very sensitive with it, about the fact that, um, yeah, I was single and uh, childless. <laughs> and I thought, okay, that's fine. That just makes me feel that my life isn't as valuable as yours. Um, yeah, that was that was a strange argument to have in the middle of a Chiquitos of all places. I mean, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of my mum loved the tone restaurant, and we've had we had some of our most profound conversations slash arguments in chain restaurants all across Edinburgh. I love I love the fact that your mum loved chain restaurants, which feels like a very nice segue into me asking you, Kath, how did your mum live? What is your mum's name? Mum's um, name was Louise. Uh, Louise could start a conversation in an empty room. She <laughs> is one of those people that when we went out shopping, just say it was a 20-minute shopping trip when I was younger, it would take an hour and a half because she would stop to speak to so many people. I used to think when I was younger that she knew everyone where we grew up, and she probably did, but she also just liked people, and people liked her. She was a, just, yeah, she was very much a people person. Um, I think I'm one of the few children who's actually disappointed in their parents' life choices when it comes to jobs. My mum worked for Royal Mail for 25 years, um, and for a lot of that time she delivered the mail and she was so smart so intelligent and I used to tell her that she was wasting her life in that job but she just loved people and that was her job every day was speaking to people when she delivered the mail and she actually delivered the mail in the area that we lived in so she like knew everyone and everyone knew her and people still stop me in the street um, and say how much they liked my mum which is really lovely that they they're like oh you look so much like her and oh we still miss your mum and oh uh, and that's really nice um but yeah she was incredibly smart um my brother and I have both made money as writers but she was probably the best writer in our family um she could write a thank you note that could like bring a grown man to tears <laughs> she she could write a complaint letter that would have a package of stuff <laughs> arriving on your doorstep. She once she once complained about there not being enough filling in a pie and like twenty pounds worth of baked goods turned up on the doorstep the next day. <laughs> she just like really good. Um, yeah, she was one of those people. She liked a good mixture of high and low culture. She used to subscribe to Vanity Fair, but she bought the National Enquirer every week. She. <gasps> absolutely loved trashy magazines um she loved red carpet shows and oh, like yeah. fashion police she absolutely loved all that yeah she was incredibly accident prone um 
something that I have, my brother and I have both picked up. He is recovering from a broken elbow from uh, falling over after Christmas on the ice. Um, and I have got so many scars, it's unbelievable. Just the kind of person that would like fall on the first day of a holiday in the swimming pool and be walking <laughs> around with an ankle bandage on for the rest of the holiday. You know, she'd have this like little white ankle because she'd had to wear a bandage and like, the rest of her would be tanned. I love her. Like she was just like she drank coffee constantly, but she was always falling asleep. She could fall asleep <laughs> anywhere. I don't know if she had narcolepsy or she just like honestly, the places she would fall asleep. She I was so jealous of that because I'm a terrible sleeper. Um, she would fall asleep on planes, trains, buses, on the toilet. Once my sister-in-law <laughs> had to um, get her out of the toilet once when she had a bit too much to drink um, and fell asleep. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but oh, she snored really badly as well. Um, at one point, my dad and her had to sleep in different rooms because her snoring was so bad. Um, yeah, she was always drinking coffee, but always asleep as well. And she would do that thing where she'd fall asleep halfway through the film and wake up and she'd be like, oh, yeah, I totally I totally got that. Yeah, no, I, I was, yeah, no, no, you did not see any of that. What are you talking about, women? Um, I've, I was thinking about, obviously because of lockdown, I've been thinking about her loads, but she had um, categories of loungewear. She had loungewear that she wore indoors and loungewear that she wore outdoors. I could not tell the difference between this indoor and outdoor loungewear. She had like indoor joggies and outdoor joggies. They both looked exactly the same. I have no idea how she knew. But, um, you know, we said, like, do you want to go for a walk? Um, she's like, oh, I need to put my outdoor joggies on. We're like, what's wrong with what you're wearing I just couldn't understand her um yeah I mean my category of clothing is have I slept in it um and then does it smell like I've slept in it (laughs) I can wear it outside yay and luckily no one's allowed to get close enough to actually smell you yeah um she was she was tiny she was like five foot tall but she was quite fierce as well like if you got on the wrong side of her or if you did something to one of her of the family um like on a parents evening um on more than one occasion one of the teachers would have said something about either me or my brother and she would just like oh she would go off on one like don't you dare speak about my children that way even if we were absolute terrors or whatever happened you know she would just um yeah we had teachers who didn't really think that we had a lot of hope in the world. You know, like my brother wanted to be a journalist and the teachers were like, no, he's never going to do that. Um, and I wanted to be a doctor and they're like, no, it's not going to happen. I mean, thankfully, I mean, I would have been an absolutely terrible doctor. But um, yeah, she was like, no, nope, my children can do whatever they want to do. Shut up. Um, <laughs> do not put them down. Uh, yeah, she's one of those people, if you got on the bad side of her... <laughs> I uh, had like a friendship breakup when I was 15, the girl that I'd been friends with since primary school and I um, stopped being friends and she used to call her the poison dwarf after that. (laughs) (laughs) How's the poison dwarf doing? And I'm like, oh, you're so cruel, but thank you. (laughs) It's like, I'm so glad I'm on your side. Um, Yeah, she was an optimist, which is something I was really jealous of because I've never been a very optimistic person. Um, even in the face of terminal cancer, she was an optimist. Um, she knew she, you know, she wasn't denying what was going on, but you know, she said, yeah, "They've given me this amount of time. I'm probably going to outdo that." 
and I'm like, okay, I admire your spirit, on you go. She was sort of funny about beauty. She didn't really, she wasn't really into beauty, but she always wore mascara every day. That was her thing. From the age of 18, she wore mascara every day. Um, she went grey-haired at the age of 28 um, when my granny died um, and never dyed it. And I always thought that was sort of like, I had been dying my hair since I was 15. And like, I always thought that was really strange. People would say, oh, that's really, why did you never dye it? And she's like, oh, I just cannot be bothered. And I was like, okay. She says, imagine the amount of money I would have spent over the years, you know, just dyeing it for no reason. I'm like, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Um, she was not a crier. Um, I am a massive crier. The, just the tiniest thing will set me off. But I only saw her cry a handful of times in my life. But every year we used to go and watch whatever Oscar bait films were coming out, you know, like the you know the really heavy going. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she would cry at the cinema. And it was like once a year, that was my birthday present to her, was I would give her a nervous breakdown in a dark <laughs> And she was she was fine with that. Um, I think it was Les Miserables we went to see and she was crying so much that she just couldn't stand up at the end of the film oh. she was just in her seat like <laughs> like it wasn't that bad <laughs> <laughs> you're just totally off on one it was uh, it was quite funny but yeah she was um, yeah she was very much missed um, yeah she's uh, one of those people that you know you always remember um, hanging out with her and even I'll, I'll get in a, a taxi sometimes and the taxi driver will know my mum and I'm like how the hell does she know all these people um, yeah, it's just, yeah she's just really, just one of these people that people know um, and uh, yeah she's very much missed by a lot of people okay so Anna and I are like in love with her <laughs> yeah I'm in love with her I'm... so we're in love with her we, lo- what we love Louise as well how much to have lost you know just wanted to acknowledge that as well yeah yeah it it was one of those things this is I mean I I do love the podcast and I love this question because um a couple of years ago I wrote a piece for stylist magazine about mother's day when you don't have a mum and I said in that that I wish there was a badge that said ask me about my dead mum because I would honestly talk about her because when you tell people that she's dead, that's it. That's the end of the conversation. Yeah, and it's the great close. Like, no, no, no. Yeah, I, no, I don't stop talking. I want I want to talk about her. Um, please ask me questions. I'm happy. Happy to talk about her. Well, well in I'm that case. Make those badges. Sorry, Emily. I keep cutting you off because I'm coming up with ideas now. You know I love a project. Well, I'm just going to Google badges while you ask Kath the next question. <laughs> because Kath yeah we're we're just gonna ask the next question which is please tell us a story about Louise please keep talking about her because obviously Anna and I are in love with her I love sorry there's so much to love like uh the number of times I've had a pie that has not been filled uh sufficiently and I think I will I will I will uh draft angry letters now to whom it may concern in honor of Louise in future but yes a story please and again it can be anything anything you like just one of these things my mum was a lapsed catholic the only person in our family who um had any kind of religion um and she with that comes a lot of catholic guilt um and in the mid 70s my parents moved house and took with them a library book that my mum had taken out the library and in the moving and everything and the unpacking the unpacking never got done for ages and about a year later, my mum discovered that she still had this library book. And um, 
because of that, she didn't visit a library for 20 years. Because <gasps> she was convinced that they were gonna, there was going to be some kind of alarm that would go off if she went back to the library. I mean, my mum absolutely loved to read. She was a voracious reader. Did not set foot in the library for 20 years because she was convinced there'd be like wanted posters because she'd accidentally stolen a book. And I just thought that was it was just very much mum. Um, she made me take books out for her. So when I was 11, I was taking out these 500-page biographies of people or like really grisly crime thrillers. And they must have thought I was an absolute weirdo. Like, give me a shopping list to go to the library with. And eventually when I left home, um, yeah, when I left home at 17, she, was, she eventually, I said, you need to go and get your own library card. Um, and they had an amnesty at the library where you could take back old books and she eventually got rid of the book and the guilt. But yeah, she was, <laughs> this, book, oh, this book haunted her for years. And I think it's not really that big a deal. You could have just paid the fines or paid for the book. But um, I mean, she there are so many stories about it. She could be really embarrassing as well. Like the time when I went to get my first bra, it was a lovely hot summer's day and she took me um, to John Lewis to get measured and that was lovely. And we came home, my dad was sitting outside sunbathing and she just proceeded to tell him all about it in the middle of the street while loads of other people were also outside their homes because it was a lovely day and everyone got a treat about, you know, how it went and the, my bra size. And <laughs> she just had, it's like, sometimes she had no filter and I'm like, um, excuse me, this is really embarrassing. I'm... Yeah, so there was times that I didn't tell her things because I thought, oh, it's going to be like news of the world. She'll just get up. Everyone will know about it now. Oh, my gosh. I honestly, that's so funny. That brings back. This is really lovely, Kath, because there are so many like this bringing me back so many lovely memories of my mum that I just don't think about. Like I remember my first bra thing with her and genuinely being so traumatised by just like being so exposed when I was like a kind of awful insecure teenager I never got over it and every time we went to John Lewis she'd be like what do you want to go get a bra and I still can't I have no idea what bra size I am yeah it's, it's, it's so traumatic I don't think I I had actually realized what was happening when she took me you know I thought we were just going to go and she would pick something and I would try it on I didn't realize it was gonna be some women measuring me and like oh what, what the hell's yeah. happening I was why like, am I, I think she just touched them yeah. why am I standing while some women feels me up what's happening uh, um so I love I love what you say about toxic positivity and I'm really giving depth to that term and I'd love you to talk a bit more about it Kath but also um in general would love to know what worked and what didn't in your grief what were the what the kind of worst things people have said and what has really helped you over the last few years well yeah I mean the we're now seven years um, into the grief and yeah, the, there was a lot of the everything happens for a reason, it's in God's plan, yada, yada. Um, and I will tell them that, you know, if that was God's plan, why the hell did they strike down the only member of the family who believed in God at the age of 59? That doesn't seem very, very much... Yeah, why? 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 None of us else, no one else believes in them. I think it's a crock of shit. Um, but yeah, no, the people would just come up. I had people who compared the death of my mother to losing a hamster. Now, I am very much, <gasps> no, me too. I am very much here for pet, very much here for pet grief. You know, I do believe that animals have a very special place in people's hearts. But my mum wasn't a rodent. She was, <laughs> she was my mum. Um, I also had someone compare it to their luggage being lost on the way to a Caribbean cruise. No, no. 
which was a particularly like what the actual fuck um yeah yes because a mother is like losing your suitcase on your way to your dream holiday okie dokie um yeah i just got a lot of people just sort of batting away my grief like oh no 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 don't I mean, sometimes my grief was very ugly and not very nice to look at. And I was very angry for a long time just because of, you know, of all the people that it could have happened to. It really shouldn't have happened to her. Um, And yeah, I mean, she should have been enjoying her retirement, um, talking on her grandkids, you know, enjoying life. And she's not. And that makes me angry most days. Um, But yeah, talking has helped. I talk a lot. Sometimes I talk too much crap on the internet to strangers on social media. I'll pour my heart out maybe to people. Um, I say things I maybe should say to my family or people who I'm close to. But yeah, I've I've had some conversations on social media over the years that have turned into real friendships. Um, I'm terrible for giving out my number to strange people um, and starting WhatsApp conversations with them. Uh, but, you know, there's that that thing you know when you've lost someone that there's the shorthand and you don't have to you know when things are really grim you don't have to explain it from the beginning because that person already knows and they're there and that's one of the things that I really found is the people that you can be real with and they can say yeah this is crap this is what you need to hear and as someone that's also seven years down um so we're twins um um people stop asking I found and people I think think oh you know it's seven years ago and you know yeah of course it I am definitely in a better place and state than I was six and a half seven years ago it's a change to the fact that she's dead and that I don't have to look at I am now having to have a life that I did not plan to do without her you know she was the love of my life and still kind of is and the grief doesn't just stop and the loss doesn't just stop and then people say things like you know I say, oh, but you know, my mum is dead. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like it's some kind of matter of fact thing and not something that can completely shatter you. And I think people forget forget to ask and forget to acknowledge it and think that you're cured after after a few years. Yeah. Um, oh, God, a few years. I was lucky if people made it to three months without like forgetting to ask anymore. Um, yeah, it was a case of, oh, are we still talking about that? <laughs> yes. <sighs> Like, we, will still like be a we will still be talking about that for a long time believe me <laughs> talk about this as long as you like um and yeah some people some people were really bad I really find um for me what has helped me is helping other people um which is very much a mum thing she was very much like we take on other people no take on other people's problems but she she liked hearing people's problems and sort of taking a bit of their load off and Unfortunately, I have had friends that have joined the club in the last year, not COVID related, which I also think there's a sort of subset of people who have lost people not to COVID, but within the last 12 months, who've kind of been forgotten about. I have two friends who lost a parent in the last year. um, And because of that, they've kind of been buried in this, this sort of collective COVID grief, but it had nothing to do with that and they've kind of yeah felt like they've been forgotten about because they're not one of the 100 odd thousand you know people which is a horrific amount of people but yeah um i think really helping other people has has helped me 
because I've got a little bit capacity to take that on now before I couldn't have, I couldn't help myself so I couldn't help anyone else but yeah being able to have those conversations with people has really helped I feel like I've not that I have responsibility because it's not it's not everyone that feels that they can take that on but um for the people who did help me I feel like yeah I need to be that for someone else because so many people were so rubbish to me after it happened I didn't ever I didn't ever appreciate that that trope about that horrible cliche of people crossing the street to avoid you didn't think that was ever a real thing until it happened to me somebody clocked me and then started walking the other way and I thought okay so this is this is really bad. <laughs> um, people don't even want to look at me or speak to me, which is fair enough. As I say, I I massive crier. The the slightest thing can set me off, and uh, yeah, it, I was in the office that I was working in. Not only had it been a, a traumatic experience working there, but then after my mum died, two other people in an office of six people lost their mums. So oh, you just had this horrific collective grief like 50% of the office had lost their mum and the other two were very sudden and yeah it was none of us were able to help each other we were all just alone in our own horrible um, grief and I had to leave that job shortly afterwards because it was just too much every day it was just and it, it was one of those things that I didn't know what to say to them and it felt so stupid and I thought well of course I should know what to say but because their circumstances were so different and because it happened so suddenly um, and their both their mums were a lot older um, and one had been ill for a long time and but her death was sudden and I just thought I, I don't I don't know how to deal with this I don't know I wasn't in a place where I could look back and say right this is what we need to do or if you need this I can help um yeah, that's the thing about the toxic positivity um, is sometimes you just need people to acknowledge that you're having a really hard time and say, yeah, that's shit and I'm here if you need anything rather than trying to fix something that can't be fixed with platitudes and hug, sending virtual hugs and all of that kind of thing. Oh, Kath, I'm so glad you left that job. I'm so sorry that it was so hard and that that happened. Oh yeah! Oh no! 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 It was absolutely. I I think part of me felt like I had some kind of responsibility to keep up. My mum was one of those like people that like you can't leave a job. You know, like jobs are for life, not just for Christmas. Uh, like no, no. <laughs> I had so many jobs; it's absolutely unreal. Um, but yeah, one of the things that's really worked for me um is making new traditions um like for Christmases and birthdays. Um, and Mother's Day I donate the money I would normally spend on a present for my mum to charity I pick a different charity every year I need to actually pick one for her birthday and donate amount of money um, to that every year um, and I buy flowers every March not on Mother's Day but it's just so that there's flowers in the house but not because someone's died and not because of whatever reason no one's ever going to buy me flowers <laughs> So I'll buy them for myself, which is nice. Um, one of the joys of being perpetually single. Um, but yeah, just sort of like having cheery things. Um, yeah, cheery things about the house. Um, but yeah, I think one of the things about grief I've discovered and have other friends have as well is like how low my tolerance for bullshit is now. It, I used to have high bullshit tolerance and now I'm just like, nope, we'll not be here for that. Yeah, I will download and then delete 
dating apps in about two and a half days if I'm lucky it's like no I do not have the energy for this this is ridiculous mm-hmm. so, I'm not that desperate to be with someone <laughs> um yeah Facebook memories is reminding me that it has been more than seven years since I've been in a functional relationship so thank you for that would you say that that's very much lines up with your grief I yeah I mean I tried dating after mom died but I was just so desperate for love and tension and something that I overlooked so many red flags oh yeah Mm. (laughs) I mean I was yeah oh god yeah it's like I I think I was just on an app you could just you could only pick the worst of humanity I think (laughs) and they all seemed they all seemed to love me it's like oh she's so broken oh they love that don't they yeah (laughs) I was just really really enjoying listening to the both of you sorry hang on <laughs> I'll come back I could honestly the... do a whole nother podcast about um the um Venn diagram between grief and dating um if you oh, ever okay. to do that Kath. <laughs> so Kath I know we've sort of um approached this a little bit throughout but what is the question that you wish you were asked and what do you wish you were able to say maybe without even needing to be asked I just think there should be more of the, just the more of the how are you? Because, you know, how are you with your grief? Because people stop asking that. And I spent so long just wanting someone to ask the question without me having to try and shoehorn it into the conversation. Um, yeah, I've, I've found that really difficult. And I don't always want to be like standing, waving, saying, hey, help me, help me. Um, but just sort of for people to acknowledge that yeah, there will be times. I mean, this this last year has been. There's just been so much time to think about things. Oh, far too much time, and I think I realised in the last year how much of my coping with grief was just distracting myself. With cinema, was a big thing for me. I used to go two or three times a week. Um, comedy. Oh, I miss comedy. Um, me too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was a culture reviewer, and there's no there's no cu- culture to review. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really difficult. And I, I just wish, as I say, that people were more of understanding about things, um, that this is something that's always going to be, you know, I will always be someone who's bereaved. Um, yeah, m- my grief was just, <laughs> I went through a period in my early 30s where I went to just like a bunch of funerals. Lots of people just kept dying one after another. I went to six in four months, which was... Oh, my God. That was 2016, which everyone's like, oh, that wasn't... uh, Everyone says that, you know, 2020 was worse than 2016. For me, 2016 was horrendous. Yeah, so many funerals. Yeah, my my ex, one of my exes died on the 2nd of January that year. So that whole year was just taken up with sort of grief feelings about him. Yeah, lots of unresolved stuff. Yeah, I, I think about how she would have been through it this last year. I probably never would have seen her. She probably would, would have moved in with her grandchildren because she would not have been without them. And I think about that all the time. And yeah, I yeah, I do try and be sort of that kind of friend that asks the, the difficult questions if, you, you know, if people and tries not to um, sort of paper over the cracks because um, it's it is messy and it's horrible and I know that not everyone has that relationship with their mother but you know I did really like her she was funny and 
sometimes a bit weird and that was great you have spoken about her so beautifully Kath it's so moving and touching and what what a mum to have lost is is what I keep thinking basically Emily would you agree oh just resounding agreement on that co-signed Kath before we go it would be great if you could let anyone that's listening know how they can find you and follow you and read your work, um, but especially your work about toxic positivity and grief, because I think that will help so many of our listeners. Yep. Um, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Rents Rights, which is R-E-N-T-S-W-R-I-T-E-S. I can't spell. <laughs> um, I think my pin tweet is my um, piece for Vogue, which... That's another totally weird thing is that I wrote a piece for Vogue. I mean, grief has taken so much away from me, but um, it's taken away also a lot of my fear. I had a lot of fear for a lot of time that I wasn't good enough. Um, I went back to writing quite late on in life. I say late on in life. I was like in my mid thirties. <laughs> um, but like after giving it up for a long time, I just never felt like I was going to get anywhere I was never going to be able to write for women's magazines because you know because I didn't want to move to London and I didn't want to you know do all that um and yeah in the last couple of years I have been in Grazia and Vogue and Stylist and places that my mum every time something's published my brother always tell me mum would be so proud of you and I really hope that she would be um but yeah, I, I totally lost the fearlessness because, like, what's the worst thing that could happen? Somebody rejects your idea. It's like, oh well, worst things have happened. So, hey, <laughs> woohoo! Um, yeah, I think my pinned tweet to stop rambling is about the toxic positivity thing, um, where she's got some really good input from a psychologist as well. Um, because yeah, it's so rampant, and also the the need to be positive um, and productive during the pandemic is part of of that whole thing. Um, the, this sort of narrative that you know you've got to write the novel and you've got to do this and you've got to do that it's no you don't have to you just have to survive that's all you have to do but yeah please grief people do get in touch i have i have like a little um yeah my dms are open if anyone wants to chat i'm happy to chat um nothing is too grim for me um i don't scare easily thank you so oh, much magic <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mother of All Losses podcast. This episode was produced by Chris Thorburn. Music by Kane Aris, who can be found at Atom Collection 2 on SoundCloud, with huge thanks to Hannah Trevathan. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on themotheroflosses at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care of yourselves and your grief.